Okay, so good to see everybody. As I say, a special welcome to uh, folks who just come the first time. So a lot of prayer requests today, and um, if I forget your prayer request, you know that's not... You know the Lord hasn't forgotten it, don't you? It's just dominant uh, on my side. So, um, yeah, okay then, let's, uh, let's start with prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for the Lord Jesus, that you gave him to die for me, and that he rose again and shall come again. And we thank you so, so much for that. We thank you that we can come together with others who have realised that and said yes to that and signed up to that. And we pray, Father, that you will fill each of us with your spirit, that we might have fire uh, and, and enthusiasm and passion in our deepest hearts because of him. We pray, Father, for those new and dear to us. We think of the young lady that... And we pray for the situation in Ukraine and for our plans to try and do some little thing for your, your children there. And we pray now that you'll open our eyes to, to your word, that we might find that this is a living word for us, and that we, we might hear your voice and come to that life eternal, and that assurance, that eternal blessed assurance that we are with you and you are with us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, so last week we looked at the story of Hannah, who is this barren woman who can't have children, in a polygamous marriage, and her husband has married a, a, another woman and has ten sons. So Hannah comes over as a bit of a loser, humanly, but she goes up to the sanctuary, to the, like the tabernacle that they had, and there's this very crooked old guy there, called Eli, and his two dodgy sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are sleeping with the women who come to worship and who are stealing everybody's sacrifices and they're offering to God. Well, despite, if you like, religion gone wrong, despite the church of her day not being functional at all, she prays to God, and she prays, and it says she prayed in her heart, her lips moved, but she didn't say any words. And Eli, the high priest, says, hey, you're drunk, you shouldn't be drunk here. She's like, I'm not, I've not been drinking. Uh, so, for him, he's a high priest, it was unthinkable that a woman could pray to God in her heart. You know, we'd have thought that's obvious, because you can pray to God in your heart. But, no, this guy didn't get it, he's so unspiritual. Well, what Hannah said to God was, if you give me a boy, I will give that boy back to you in service. Well, she gets pregnant, and she has Samuel. And when he's, it seems, just three years old, <coughs> stop breastfeeding him, she takes him to, um, to Eli, the high priest, and says, right, I'm leaving him here with you. I mean, who has the right thing to do or not? In the context, I don't know. But anyway, that's what, he, what she did. And so this little boy, Samuel, grows up with this very passive, shall we say, unspiritual high priest as his father figure. And this is Eli, Eli's sons, who are definitely dodgy people. Right, now that's where we pick up the story. The child Samuel ministered to Yahweh before Eli. So, he served. And he was just a child. You couldn't be. Uh, a, you couldn't. You couldn't serve in the uh, tabernacle unless you were Levite. Uh, really, until you're 20 years old or 30 years old. But he's just a kid. And yet he does the job. The word of Yahweh was precious in those days. There was no frequent vision. 
At that time, when Eli was laid down in his place, now his eyes had begun to grow dim so that he couldn't see, and the lamp of God hadn't yet gone out, and Samuel had laid down in Yahweh's sanctuary where the ark of God was, Yahweh called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. He said, I didn't call. Lie down again. He went and lay down. Yahweh called again, Samuel. Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. He answered, I didn't call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel didn't yet know Yahweh, neither was the word of Yahweh yet revealed to him. Yahweh called Samuel again the third time. He arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Eli perceived that Yahweh had called the child. So Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Yahweh, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Yahweh came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Yahweh said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel which will make both the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house. I will make a beginning and end it. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he didn't rebuke them. Actually, he did rebuke them, and we'll come to that later. God says he didn't. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the guilt of Eli's house will not be removed, not with sacrifice, not offering forever. Samuel lay until the morning and opened the doors of the house of Yahweh, and Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, Here I am. He said, What was it that he said to me? Please don't hide it from me. May God deal with you severely if you hide anything from me. And all the things that he said to me. Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. He said, Eli said, It is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him. Samuel flew, and Yahweh was with him, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established in the prophet of Yahweh. Right, so, the whole picture that you get then is a, uh, a very like, passive situation. Samuel's father, Elkanah, his real father, had been very passive. When his wife couldn't have a child, unlike Isaac and Rebecca couldn't have a child, he didn't pray. He didn't pray to God. He just took another wife and, and uh, told his first wife, well, I do love you, hon. Uh, but he had all these kids by the second wife. So the father's very passive. And Eli, whenever you meet Eli in this uh, section of the Bible, he's always passive. He's either sitting down or laying down. When Hannah comes to the sanctuary to start with, he's sitting down. And at the end... We're going to read in chapter 4 that when he dies, he's sitting on a chair and he hears that the ark of God is taken and he's, he has a heart attack and dies. And here he's laying down. So you get the impression of someone who's totally passive, absolutely passive. And his eyes have begun to grow dim, so he was going blind. And the lamp of God hadn't yet gone out. And Samuel had laid down in Yahweh's sanctuary where the ark of God was. Well... What they had there in the tabernacle, there was the holy place where there was the candlestick with the seven lampstands that had to be burning all the time. And then there was the most holy place where the ark of God was and where the glory of God was shimmering over the ark, this sort of golden box that was the ark of the covenant, and where the high priest alone could go once a year. And so 
it seems that things have broken down to such a point that Samuel is kicking down the sleep next to the ark. He's kicking in the most holy place. And the lamp of God, the candlestick of God, hadn't yet gone out. It was supposed to never go out. But it seems they just kept it down in the daytime. Oh, it's night time now. Oh, yeah, well, let it go out. So, the, the candlestick and the oil in it represented the spirit of God, the fire, the flame of God burning. And they just let it go out. And then this voice comes to Samuel. And he wants to Eli, he thinks it's, uh, he, he thinks it's, it's Eli. Eli says, no, it's not me. And it keeps happening three times. Eli says, it's not me. And finally, he understands that this is actually the voice of God. Now, the voice of God is to speak from between the cabin, which were over the ark. So I think he was there, kicking by the ark, and he, God speaks to him. Samuel, Samuel. And he thinks, what's that noise? Well, it must be Eli. There's nobody else sleeping around here. It must be Eli. He goes, no, it's not me. And it's emphasized there that Samuel hadn't yet, didn't, uh, hadn't yet had the word of Yahweh revealed to him. So he'd never heard the voice of God before. And if you wonder why this whole thing happened. Why this three times business of being cool, thinking it's Eli, and then he, he understands it's God. I think it was the teaching to differentiate between the voice of man and the voice of God. Because Samuel, Samuel, means the one who hears, who hears God. And that was who he was meant to be, one who listened to God. But he thought about it was Eli, who was speaking the word of God. And then he understands that, oh, well, no, this is the voice of God. So, he happened to help him see the difference between the voice of man and the voice of God. So, it's again the old theme of the difference between religion and personal spirituality. That is personally, well, hearing God's word for yourself. And so, he says, speak, Lord, verse 10, for your servant hears. That's got to be our attitude when you come to the scriptures in the Bible. Speak for your servant is listening. And God says to Samuel, Behold, I'm going to do something in Israel which is terrible. Everyone who hears it, their ears are going to tingle. They say, I'm going to destroy Eli and his family. Well, you see here that Eli calls Samuel my son. He said earlier, um, Go and lie down, my son. Uh, verse 6 there, he answered, I didn't call you my son, lie down again. But it's normal for children as they grow up to have a view of God that is based around their father figure, whoever that father figure is. Well, his natural father, Elkanah, was very distant, wasn't living there, was dumped him there at the time, I thought, three years old. And his effective father figure was this old guy, Eli, he's very, very passive, very passive. And so, the image that he had of a father was not a very good one. And normally, people construct their view of God based on their experience of their own father figure. So, for example, if your father was abusive and 
flew off into a temper every time the kid did something wrong, well, people tend to think, oh, that's what God must be like. He flies off into a tantrum every time I might just do a little sin, you know? And so, Samuel sort of had everything against him. He really did, because yeah, he'd been dumped there, three years old, and he had very bad sort of background, and, and these father figures he had were very passive and very distant. But God is saying, yeah, despite that, I want you. I want a relationship with you personally. And that is how it is with all of us. That the relationship with God we have is part of this new creation that we're in. It doesn't matter what it was in the background. It doesn't matter what our image of God was from our fathers or mothers or whatever. He is making this new personal relationship with us. That's what he wants to do. So then, God says about Eli and his family, verse 12, when I make a beginning, I'll also make an end. And you think, what? What's that? I think the idea is that God, when it comes to judging people, he often does make a beginning. He says, well, I'm going to do this to you. But then there's a gap before he actually does it. And in that gap, we can repent. So then, you take with Nineveh. God says, in 40 days I will destroy Nineveh. But as it happened, they repented. And so Nineveh wasn't destroyed. Okay. And so it is with Eli. He's saying, well, you know, I'm beginning. Uh, but there was a gap. But unfortunately, he foreknew that Eli was not. Eli was not really going to... Um, Repent, and so he says, well, unfortunately, I'm going to make a beginning and also make an end. The thing is, we live in that gap. The wage of sin is death. We've all sinned, and because we've all sinned, well, the judgment is death. We have been condemned, but we're living in the gap between God having said that and it happening. And in that gap, we can change the outcome. We can repent, be baptised, and... Yeah, and then all condemnation is removed. It's not going to happen. This can't, you know, we're in that gap. When you realise that, that's what gives life some intensity. That we're not just drifting through life passively, but well, life is serious. Everything is serious when it comes to God and spiritual things. That I'm in that gap. I've sinned, I must die, but I'm in the gap and I can change the outcome. And then God says, I told him I will judge his house or his family forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he didn't rebuke them. Didn't he? In chapter 2, let's read it. Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons did to all Israel, how they lay with the women who served at the door of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil deeds for the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear. You make Yahweh's people disobey. Yet God says, I'm going to destroy you, Eli, because you never rebuked your sons. Uh, did he rebuke them? It kind of sounds like he did. But God says he didn't. So if you go through it again, he hears what his sons are doing. And he hears this report, this gossip that's going around that your sons are sleeping with the women who are coming to worship God. 
Did Eli not know that? I'm sure he did know it. I'm sure he did. But when he hears, oh wow, the, the cat's out of the bag, and uh, oh yeah, it's, uh, it's gossiping all around Israel, what my sons are doing, he goes to them and says, it's not a good report. He had to go to them and say, guys, stop sinning. He's just saying, look, pull back a bit, guys, because there's a, this is making bad publicity. And he himself grew fat, we are told, from all the meat and the fat that his son stole from people who came to worship God. So, put it together, well it appears he did rebuke them, but God says he didn't. And there you have it, that it can really be that somebody on the surface level appears to serve God, appears to do something spiritual, and actually they don't. I'll give you an example, a number of examples. People talk about love. Oh, I'm full of love. Really? Yeah, people will talk about it, but reality is otherwise. People say, oh, I've forgiven her. I forgave her a long time ago. And yet they're grinding away about their ex. For the last 30 years they've been grinding away about how awful she was. Prayer. You can pray, you can say the words. It means nothing. It's like King Saul. Just before he died, he... We're told he, he asked of God, but didn't get a reply, so he asked of a witch. And when he dies, God says, Saul never asked me, he asked a witch. But it says he did ask God, but then he also asked a witch for help. So did he ask God or not? God says he didn't. Well, it says he did. In other words, he didn't really. You know, We can all mouth off a prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, Blah, 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 continue. You can mouth it. But not pray. Really. That's why it says about Elijah, that he prayed in his prayer. And I like that. He prayed in his prayer. So there's prayer, and there's the prayer that is within it. All sorts of things are like this. People, you know, say, oh, I believe. Oh, I have a very strong faith. Really? Um, when life situations come up, they act like there's no God above at all. You know, we say we forgive people, but do we? We say that we believe that love conquers all, but do we? You know? And so it is here. He rebuked them. He says that. You know. But then God says, but no, you didn't. Now Paul says, in the context of breaking the bread, let a man examine himself, and so let him take of that bread and drink of that cup. And this is the thing, that there's such a thing as surface level faith. And I think it's a good thing that God works in our lives to bring you out of that. Actually, I think that none of us would be here in this church in a pub unless something like that had happened, whereby we come to this personal position where we are searching for personal relationship with God. Uh, and I'm not just drifting along with the flow. One way or another, it has happened with us all. Because he doesn't want rid of that surface level relationship. Therefore God says, I've sworn to the house of Eli that the guilt of Eli's house will not be removed with sacrifice nor offering forever. 
Well, what does that mean? Does that mean God say, Eli, even if you were to repent, mate, I'm not going to forgive you? I, I don't think so, because I don't think anyone can ever be at a point where they are not able to repent. No one is at a point where they can't possibly be forgiven. While there's life, there's hope. So while someone is alive, you can still pray. Uh, they can still pray for forgiveness and be forgiven. But what God says is, your sin is not going to be removed by sacrifice and offering. And oddly enough, David, um, just well, a generation later, is going to pretty well quote those words. When he sins with Bathsheba, right? He, he commits adultery and then he kills this young woman's husband so he can marry her and he repents and he says I know that there's no sacrifice I can offer I've got to die but despite that although sacrifice and offering can't save me please would you forgive me by grace and God says oh sure and so it is here God is saying to Eli you can't get forgiven by sacrifice and offering but that doesn't mean that you can't be forgiven what he's trying to get Eli to do is to stop being so passive and saying, oh yeah, well this is how it is. What's going to be is going to be. Um, oh well, I can't offer any sacrifice to get out of this one. Okay, so be it. But he's saying, no, no, you can't. Get on your knees and beg God. And he'll forgive you. Well, Samuel is just a boy. lays until the morning. And he's been told, really, to tell this message about what a bad guy Eli is to everybody. Because he's told that everyone who hears it all over Israel, their ears are going to tingle when they hear what you tell them. It says at the end of this chapter that Samuel's words went throughout all Israel. He's just a kid. Just a kid. So, you know, God, God works to anyone who's willing to be used. That's what you see here. He wasn't qualified, he wasn't old enough to be a priest, let alone to kick down next to the ark in the most holy place. wasn't qualified. But okay, God used him. Well, in the morning, of course, he fears to tell Eli. But Eli says, no, my son, verse 16, again, you see, Eli is like the father figure to Samuel. He says, um, you know, what, what was it? And, uh, well, he says what it was. Samuel told him everything. And Eli then replies, it is Yahweh, let him do what seems good to him. Well, this is passivity. He's just saying, yeah, well, what is going to be is going to be. So be it, that's how it is, so be it. And it reminds me of Hezekiah, who says the same. And God says, you know, you're going to get judged for your materialism and your pride and all that. And he just says, oh, well, good is the word of the Lord and I will have peace and truth in my days. This is, you know, it's like we talk to people about the Day of Judgment. You know the Day of Judgment is coming. You know you're responsible to God. You've sinned, we've all sinned. You're going to come the Day of Judgment. Do something about it. And people say, ah, yeah. Well, what will be, will be. Yes, what will be, will be. But you can change it, and it depends upon you. We can change the outcome. This is the thing. And Eli is set up here as an example of who not to be. That he's so passive. Well, yeah, this is Yahweh. This is God. He doesn't say, oh, God doesn't exist. No, he's not an atheist. And the guy in his own way, 
does sort of believe. Yeah, he actually tells Samuel, well, next time you hear the voice say, speak, Lord, for your seven years. Okay? Yeah. And God had already told Eli earlier, I'm going to take away the priesthood from you and I'm going to give it to a faithful priest. Clearly talking about Samuel. And, you know, Eli doesn't kill Samuel, he doesn't persecute Samuel, he lets him go on living in the sanctuary. But he's just passive, and that is my point, that he's just totally passive. And this is how not, not to be. Now, jumping ahead a little bit, this ark that represented the presence of God, the Israelites took it with them into battle. And the Philistines defeated them and captured the ark. So verse 13, news comes of the battle. And the messenger comes, verse 13, and Eli was sitting on his seat. You see, he's always sitting, passive. He was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. He was very worried about the gold box, apparently not too worried about all the people of Israel and his sons. He was very worried about the ark of God. When the man, the messenger, came into the city and reported what had happened, all the city cried out. Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were bad so he couldn't see. The man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the army and I fled today from the battle. He said, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news answered, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's been a great slaughter among the people. Number three, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Number four, the ark of God has been captured. When he made mention of the ark of God, Eli fell off his seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck broke and he died for he was an old man and heavy, or fat and meat that he nicked uh, from the sacrifices over the years. My point is, now this guy whom God was condemning had a great love for the ark of God. When he's told, uh, Israel's been defeated, the, the army's been defeated, your two sons are dead, well yeah, okay. But the ark's been captured. The ark's been captured and the guy died. So this is, you see, religion rather than spirituality. This is mere religion. This is a guy saying that for him it's more important the external trapping of the religion than people. Your sons are dead, are not you? The ark's been captured. The ark's been captured. Oh man, as a heart attack, he dies. It's like Israel, uh, Judah later on. They so loved the temple. Oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they said. They covered the altar and the temple with their tears. But then they put their own idols in the temple of God and burnt incense to all their idols in the temple of God. It's like people are very religious. They may live a very bad life, be deceitful, nasty, unkind people. Oh, yeah, when it comes to Sunday, oh, yeah, very holy and particular about their particular church or their particular religion. And if, uh, I remember years ago, there was a discussion the church I was involved with about repainting the church hall, what colour to paint it, and what colour the new chairs should be. And there was this woman who just come out of nowhere, she, she went like crazy about it. No, 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 this is God. This is for God. It must be this colour, and it must not be that colour by this colour. This is for God. And this woman was, let's see, the sky of diamonds. I mean, you know, she was way off spiritually, well, very, very far away. But somewhere it comes to life. But, oh, no, 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 we, we mustn't change. Oh, no, no, it's very precious about this. Uh, you know? 
this whole thing. And it wasn't just Eli who was like that. His daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was pregnant at the time of delivery. You know, I love the Bible, man. It's all so real. Yeah? It's real people. When she heard the news that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth. It was overcome by her pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she didn't answer, neither did she pay any attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. So there she is giving birth and she's in difficulties. Oh wow, she has the baby. It's a baby boy. Not interested. Call it Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God is taken. Again, you know, the ark of God. Oh, this gold box has been taken by the Philistines. Oh no. No relationship we got. And you can see how it was with... Uh, Eli at the start of the story, when he sees Hannah praying and her lips are moving, yeah, your lips move, but I can't hear what you're saying. Uh, absolutely. And he's like, oh, but you must be drunk. Well, no, I'm not drunk. I'm praying to God. Well, you, you're praying to God in your heart. No, you can't be. You can't just be praying to God in your head. Well, of course you can. Yeah. So, it's uh, really so sad that people are like this. But why have we got all this in the Bible? It's like the Bible teaches us by sort of warning you what not to be. So the question is, how can we not be passive? How can we not be have this terrible passivity that, that people like Eli and them have? One thing is it's religion that makes people passive. Right? And when you come into personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, how can you not be anything but live and active and responsive? The Son of God, Paul says, loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if you're going to get that in your mind, that he hung on the cross for me, and he died for me, and I, as a desperate sinner, have reached out my little hand to him and he's taken it with both hands. You see, that is one reason why we do the breaking of bread. That it brings you back. It brings you back all the time to him there on the cross. Because that is a big challenge to our passive sort of attitude. Just drifting along. You can't drift along when you know that Someone, the Son of God, loved you and died for you. Yeah? You, you go to sleep at night thinking about that. I think of you know, by the thing. Hold thou my cross before my fading eyes. And I, I repeat that to myself as I'm going to sleep. I want to go to sleep with that in front of me. That, that, yes. He did this for me. Now how can I be passive? How can I shrug when eternity is in front of me? You know, sacrifice and offering are not going to sort out our sins, but His grace has. And we're forgiven. Wow. Once you are convicted of your sinfulness and if you know and believe it's been dealt with, then you, are, you, you 
you are not passive to that. You think, oh well, that was cool, I was forgiven. Oh well, so what? No. You have been forgiven. You have got eternity in front of you. Well, we will definitely be saved. This is not a mere religion. This is not just some philosophy. It's a nice idea. Although, we will live forever. And we have, in that sense, eternal life. Now, you can't be passive to that. You can't shrug and say, oh, yeah, nice idea. You can't be passive to that. Nobody can be passive. It's not like, you know, nothing really grips me anymore. That's got to grip you. Absolutely, it's got to grip you. And especially catching that personal relationship. It is our solemn duty, it seems to me, to reconstruct in our own minds the crucifixion. And we kneel as sinners before the cross of Calvary. I know these are very common ideas, but this is what it's about. And he there, as it were, catches our eye. Catches our eye. And what what look is in his eye? I think solely pity and love. And I'm doing this for you. Now, if in a theoretical world, I would have said to him, you know, I'm not worth it. Don't don't do that for me. Don't no, don't die on a on a stake of wood for me. I'm not worth it. Just give me 70 years normal life in normal country and that's enough. But, like enough, he took the initiative and he's done it. And he's done it for me. Presented it to me. And so, well, he's done it for me. And I, I can't just say, oh no, I pass. Pass. You can't pass. You can't just say, no, not responding. He's done it. It's not like you asked him to. He took the initiative. And this is the great power of the fact that God foreknew us and Jesus foreknew us and has now taken the initiative. And, well, we pretty well have to say this. And say no. And there's no middle path of indifference. So, look, if you have not been baptized or if you feel the need to recommit yourself to Jesus Christ, just have a word with me or spin us or any of us here. Come back to our place after lunch and get baptized. And those of us who have been baptized, those of us who have put our hand to the plow, let's get out of this passivity. We live in a world where everything is sort of lived half consciously, where everyone's very passive, really. Where the name of the game is to have enough money so that you can sit at home and watch daytime telly and uh, well, sit on the beach in some nice place now and again and uh, order as many pizzas as you want without worrying about the credit card bill and uh, you know, wear nice clothes and it's all very passive. It's very passive. Whereas we are called to life and life more abundantly. The life of the Spirit. That is the only way. So, that's the message. And out of all this, dysfunction, Samuel arises. No matter what you've got in your background, no matter what your images of God were from your father, your mother, whatever, no matter at all. Samuel, like the Lord Jesus, he grew, we're told, like a beautiful green shoot out of a dry ground. In other words, there was nothing in his environment 
That was encouraging. But it grew beautifully. Right, so we remember his death and resurrection for us. Uh, right, um, Kevin, would you like to give thanks for the, um, the bread and the cup? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you for this opportunity for the communion where we can bless the wine and the bread. In the name of Jesus, I pray that you'll bless each and every one of us. Bless each and every one of us here today. I pray in the name of Jesus, and that all those who do not know Christ will get to know him. And I pray that you'll draw them closer to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The bread is like the body of Jesus. The cup is like his blood. You know, Spino said something to me once that the closer you stand to the fire, the warmer and the hotter you'll get, and the longer you stand there. And you know, that fire is Jesus personally. And the closer you stand to him, the closer you are in relationship with him, something of his fire. Of uh, his walk, of his passion, will come to you. So be centered on him, you know, day and night. Right. Well, let's give thanks for our food. And if you'd like to be baptised, come come and talk to me afterwards. Um, Aspire, would you like to give thanks for food? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your love, Father. So pure, so deep, so honest, so truthful, Father. There is no other love. And yet, it took you all the way to the cross for our sins. And we give you thanks for the food that you supply to us today, Father. May it nourish our bodies and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.